here. Um, we've uh, been seven weeks in uh, Jesus' great prayer, sometimes called his high priestly prayer. Um, in John chapter 17, if you, um, if you have one of the, the journals we have, if you, if you forgot it and you want to, you can grab some. There's still some out back there um, to take some notes here today. And uh, if, you, if you haven't grabbed one yet, Feel free to grab it, and maybe you can use it as a as a review as to all that the Lord's been teaching us uh, through this through this series. And so we've really seen Jesus' heart in this uh, in this passage of Scripture as He's uh, just about to head to the cross. Really, His last words in John's Gospel before the uh, the narrative that leads Him right to to Calvary and to to being crucified for our sins, we learn really what's on his heart. And we learn what this so that we can have our prayers informed by, uh, by his prayer. We, we learn what's important to him. And uh, we, we've seen him pray that, um, that he would glorify God. Even through these, these dark hours that are going to follow, he says, Father, I want to glorify you, and now would you glorify me? He prays, and we've seen for really the bulk of his prayer is uh, praying for his disciples, the ones um, who are following after him, the, the ones who have come to believe in him as Messiah, Savior, and King. And uh, he prays for a number of things for us. He prays that we'd be protected from the evil one. He prays that uh, as the church of Jesus is in the world, that um, that, that we would be um, set apart and distinct that we'd be uh, consecrated or sanctified, which was, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, really uh, a process of becoming more and more like him, that, our, that we'd love the things that he loves, that we'd be set apart for his purposes, that all of our lives would be, uh, we, could, we could say, Lord, I, I, I live all of my life for you and for your glory. And uh, that the entirety of my life is pushing in one direction. It's a unified whole. He, we've seen that uh, last week we talked about how he prays for his disciples that they would be one, that they'd be unified. That, um, and, we, and we think that that applies to local contexts like a local church and then even be between congregations, that, we would, uh, that, we'd, that we'd be united in our desire to love and follow and serve Jesus. That um, Really, I, I pray in increasing ways that uh, the church of Niagara would... Um, that there would be less and less of a spirit of competition, that uh, what we would see and really, really believe is that uh, the, the things that, you know, the competition for Cornerstone Community Church is not North End Church. The competition for Cornerstone Community Church is not St. Andrew's Presbyterian, is not Village Bible Church, or is not any other church. That we're one with those churches. The competition is the world and the devil. Those, anything that would grab the hearts of, and minds of people who surround us, our neighbors and family members, our co-workers, and, and call for their love and their allegiance, those things above God, above following Jesus. And so we want to do all-out war and go all-out against those things, um, those idols, if you will, uh, that, uh, that call for our worship. And, and call people to come and become worshipers and followers of Jesus. That's our competition. And so we as a church want to live in the unity that Jesus prays for for us. This morning, really, as we come to the end of this great prayer, we're going to focus in on these last few verses. And um, so I'm not sure what the Lord's been saying 
to you in this series? How what what's he been um, what's he been calling you to? I uh, I hope I I hope that you're part of a life group where you can uh, discern those kinds of things together and say this is what the Lord's saying to me. Does that make sense? What's he calling us together to? Who do you have in your life that you can process these? Uh, these things with maybe he's calling you to prayer maybe he's calling you to a renewed commitment to prayer to that end i hope you come out tonight for our prayer summit maybe he's calling you to faith in him maybe that as you've um as you've heard uh, the the prayer of jesus in these weeks and and i love the fact that there are that people among us who aren't yet believers in jesus who are maybe kicking the tires on christian faith window shopping jesus if you will and uh, we love that you're here, but maybe he's calling you to actually cross that line of faith and close with him and close the deal, if you will, and, and put your faith and trust in him and say, yeah, I'm going I'm to, he's calling me to be a follower and, and I'm going to become that follower of Jesus. Maybe he's calling you to express that faith that you have in, in baptism. We believe as a church that when, if you uh, confess that Jesus is Savior, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you confess him as Lord, that uh, the call, that you don't have to wonder about this call, the call is to baptism, to, to publicly identify yourself with Jesus and his church. We're having a baptism coming up on December 2nd. Classes actually start. We have kind of four prep sessions just so you understand what baptism, baptism means and what faith in Jesus means. That starts next week. So if you would, um, if, if you're not baptized as a believer in Jesus and the call for you is to publicly identify yourself with Jesus and his church. Come talk to one of us in our connection time in a few moments. We'd love to journey with you towards those baptisms. But in this text today, um, what I, I want to help us see is really that Jesus makes one of the most audacious claims that, um, that could possibly be made. Uh, what Jesus is saying in these last few verses of, uh, of his prayer, what he's praying is, is that all of the challenges that uh, we need, everything we need to face all of the challenges of life and death are, are found in Him. That, that everything we need to face the challenges that will inevitably face all of us are found in Him. And the truths that, uh, that He prays forward into our lives in this text. I've organized uh, kind of these truths to explore that great claim that everything we need to face life and death uh, are found here uh, around three thoughts. So first thought is what the world needs now. What does the world need now? Love, sweet love, right? The world needs now is love, sweet love. Look at the second half of verse 23. And I I touched on this last week, but I want to just... We, we, it's such an incredible claim. It's such an incredible claim. And he, he prays why. He tells us the why for his prayer for unity. He says, I pray that they would be one. Why? So that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That little phrase or those two little phrases that make up a clause in that sentence is so incredible. What Jesus is saying is I want the... I want my believers to be one. I want them to be united so that the world would know the gospel, so that the world would know the good news. What's the good news? Well, first of all, that you sent me. I want the world to know that you sent me, Father. I want the world to know, ultimately, that I'm God, 
that I've been sent on a mission. Not just that I'm here. Obviously, the world knows I'm here. They can see me. They know I was born. They know that I've come. But I want them to know that I've been sent. When you're sent, you're on a mission. He says, I want, I want the world to know that I'm here not just as a good teacher. I've not just come as a teacher. I've, I've been sent to be the Savior. I've been sent. You see, if he's just come as a teacher, um, then, then all, you know, he, his love for us will be dependent on how good we follow his teaching, right? You judge a teacher, and a teacher's a view of you is really determined by how much of what they teach you've learned. That's why they evaluate you. That's why they test you. And so if Jesus is just a teacher, his love for you, his acceptance of you, his view of you is really determined by how, how good you do at following his teaching. But he's not just a teacher. He's not just here. He's not just been born. He has been born, but he's been sent. He's been sent on a mission. He's been sent as the Savior so that his love for us doesn't actually depend on how well we've obeyed this week or not. That his view of you is irrespective, actually, of your obedience to him. That's grace. That's grace. And so the second, second thing, not just that I've been sent, the second thing, reason why he prays that we'd be one is so that the world would know that you love them as you love me. In the same way, Father, that you love me, I, the world will know that you love them in the same way. That little word, as, is so incredible. So, so incredible. And so that we're loved, not like how we deserve, but, be, but how Jesus deserves. Can you let that truth just hang in your, in, and settle in your heart for a moment? That, that the Father loves you, not like you deserve. That the Father loves you like Jesus deserves. That's incredible. That's grace. That's grace upon grace upon grace. The, the New Testament says we're clothed. In Christ. We're clothed in Christ. That, that we're perfect in Jesus. That, that the, the holiness of Jesus becomes our holiness. That the goodness of Jesus becomes our goodness. It's imputed or it's counted. It's like credited to our account. It's in our account. His obedience, His goodness, His generosity, His compassion, His love. All of that credited to you. And so you're... You are loved like Jesus deserves. That's incredible. That's incredible. Think, try to imagine for a second how the Father loves Jesus. You know, no one, no one loves a child like their parent. You know, the, as a parent, you know things about your kid and, and there's... There's times when you're, when, you know, as I'm a dad four times over, and, and there's times where just my heart swells with, with pride in my kids and, and love for them. You know, I, I'm not going to get up on this soapbox and brag about my kids here, but, like, but we, you know, there's, there's times where, where I can see things in my kids that, that no one else really knows the struggle of. It's in the last uh, two years, we've become a foster family, and, and so Sherry and I have seen the sacrifice and how our kids have really embraced that mission and brought, made it their own, and no one else really knows the sacrifice involved in that 
but us, but as their parents. And as we as we see them being that selfless and, and caring for for kids that have come through our home, like our heart just swells with pride and we're just so deeply in love with them and just proud of them. So multiply that by a billion. No one knows what Jesus has done like the Father does. You see, Jesus and the Father were in this perfect relationship of love. Not for just a little while, not for a couple of years, but for all eternity. They, what C.S. Lewis calls, we were in this dance of love where they were so, in the Holy Spirit, so selfless and revolving around one another that they were in this beautiful, eternal, infinite, immense dance where they, they honored one another and they spoke words of love to one another and they, they had the perfection of love. No one knows that. What that's like, except the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We can try to imagine that. So the Father knows what Jesus gave up because Jesus gave that up, right? He on the cross is crying out, Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he was separated from that love, from the experience of that love. And so imagine Jesus' reception. He rises from the dead. He ascends back to heaven. Imagine his reception back into heaven. I mean, the angels are clapping. They're giving him a, a, a standing O, right? But the Father, the Father knows more than anyone what, what his Son has done. All, what, 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 he, what he cost. He, he knows more than anyone the bravery that was required, the courage that was required to go to the cross. He knows more than anyone the, the, what it cost Jesus. And so Jesus comes back to heaven and the Father's heart is just welling with pride, welling with eternal, infinite, unbounded love and admiration and pride for His Son. And John 17 says, that love that the Father has for the Son, that's the same love that He has for you and me. That's amazing. That's amazing. That kind of love that kind of love is the kind of love that you and I were built for it's the you it's water to a fish that's what we need that's the environment in which we can live and thrive and flourish that kind of love so all of the greatness all of the honor all of the valor all of the beauty of Jesus clothes you been um, trying to educate myself a little bit in a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher from McGill University named Charles Taylor. He's kind of in vogue in uh, pastor circuits right now, and so I, I got to keep up and uh, um, at least appear smart. And so I've been trying to understand his what, what Charles Taylor um, has been saying. And uh, I'm not smart enough to actually read Charles Taylor. I have to read people who've written about him. So um, so I'm kind of like, I'm one step removed, but I'm getting there. Um, so I've been, but I've been trying to understand uh, his message of, uh, because people who are much smarter than me are saying it's important. And uh, he's able to just, he's describing the culture in which we live in a way that's important for us to understand as followers of Jesus. And so um, he's written some books on, on what it means to be a secular society. He's written a book called The Sources of the Self. And so how we, how we as people, find our identity. And what Charles Taylor, I think, at least what I'm told, is what he's saying is that 
Um, well, and he's asking the question, how, how do you decide who you are as a person? How do you decide what your identity is? How do you decide who you are? And he says, you know, uh, in traditional cultures, your family, your tribe, your uh, clan tells you who you are. They, you find your identity primarily in the, the family or the, the tribe or the clan that you belong to. And so your family tells you who you are. And if you will live up to that, that you're going to be affirmed and you're going to have self-esteem. So that's, it's not totally divorced from us and we're not totally excluded from that. Maybe you've um, been brought up in a, in a family and said, you know, you're a bane, so you work hard, right? Maybe, maybe your parents or your grandparents or your, your extended family has said that. Maybe you've been told, you're a such and such last name, so you're stubborn. And um, Good thing I didn't fill that one in, right? Um, but, uh, but, but by and large, we as a society, as a modern Western society, have moved a little bit past that. And now we're all about self-actualization, about um, that in modern Western society, we are supposed to define ourselves. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. Define for yourself who you are. You do you, right? Um, so this whole idea of self-determination, that uh, right now you're supposed to find your own journey, live your own truth, right? Uh, you figure out who you are. You figure out what's important to you. You figure out what, who you're supposed to be in this world. So that Charles Taylor, what he says is, um, as a result of that, we have this incredibly fragile identity because we don't have anyone to affirm us. We don't have anyone to come and say, yes, you're on the right path. Right when you belong to your uh, clan and your, or your tribe and your family told you who you are and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to be, you could you had a measure to did you measure up? And so you can if you if you follow that you have affirmation you have self-esteem. But what Charles Taylor is saying is that uh, in our society where we're supposed to figure out for ourselves who we are, we're we're desperate for constant attention and affirmation. And we have this fragile identity. We, we constantly, constantly need people to tell us how good we are. And we hate it when people disagree with us. Everyone has to recognize us. We're easily slighted, easily offended. We're anxious and we're insecure. So you, if, you, um, if you're on social media, like that's, that, that's just accentuated, I think. That, that's a breeding ground for this kind of thing. So, so on social media, if you're on... Facebook or Twitter or whatever, like, if, if someone dare disagree with me, like, it's just a toxic, harsh critique of anyone who would dare disagree with me. Um, another writer that uh, I've read, you know, talks about the Hitlerization of our society, where if anyone who doesn't agree with you is likely Hitler, right? Like, oh, so, you know, and we've even seen this in Niagara Lake, if you followed the local recent election on social media, my goodness, the harshness and the, uh, of the critiques, if you dare disagree with me. Oh, you think that we, we should be able to develop on the Randwood estate. Well, you probably think Hitler was justified in killing all the Jews too, right? Like, but th- that's what, it, that's what, um, that's where, it, how dare you disagree with me? If you disagree with me, you're probably one of the worst kinds of people out there because I'm so fragile in who I am. I need your constant affirmation. So we have this harsh critique of those who disagree with us. 
And then in, on social media, we, we not only harshly critique those who disagree with us, we have this very carefully edited version of ourselves that we can project to the world, right? So, so no, one, no one's posting a picture on Facebook in which they look bad, right? You're, you're putting your best foot forward. You're, you're, not telling, you're not really airing your dirty laundry. Uh, some people do, but um, by and large, you're not, you're not talking about how terrible your life is. You're, you're showing and projecting to the world, look how great my life is. You probably want to be like me, right? And so we, we post something and we check and we're like, oh, how many likes do I have? Oh, did this person like what I posted or not? Like, and so we have this, this need to, 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 to fill, to get affirmation that I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm measuring up. You see this in, in a lot of different things, right? We live in a selfie culture, right? So our phones, we can take self-portraits, so we call those selfies, Right, um, and we make fun of people who take selfies. I mean, I take selfies too, but I, I mean, not in that situation, right? No. <laughs> we make fun of those who take selfies, even though we all do it. We know that you know judging people by their physical attractiveness is not a good thing to do, and yet I want to be hot. We have this self-help culture, right, where everyone is a unique, brilliant ray of sunshine that, that's going to pierce through the darkness of our culture. And none of it works. We still have this fragile identity and this insecurity. We still sense we're not quite okay. The scriptures say that that's a knowledge that we're sinful, that we don't measure up on our own. And that all our attempts to, to fill our buckets, to fill our hearts with affirmation, are futile. I've been reading, um, in preparation for these sermons, I've been reading uh, a book of sermons on John 17 by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a British preacher from the last century. Um, and he says this, on page, and it's on page 45 of our journals that we've printed. He says, most of our problems, if, de- if indeed not all of them, arise simply from the fact that we fail to realize, understand, and appreciate as we ought what is the real truth about us as Christian people. And he's talking about this, these verses here. These gr- exceeding great and precious promises are all for us. They're meant for us. They're spoken for us. Many of them are descriptions of us, and yet how little do we grasp this fact? How little do we seem to realize the truth that is enshrined in these truths and how slow we are to apply these things to ourselves. I've increasingly come to the conclusion that somehow or other our trouble lies in the fact that we do not read our scriptures properly. That is, we tend to read them without meditating on them, without taking a firm grip of them and grasping them for ourselves in realizing that these truths are truths about us. seems perfectly clear that if only we did that, our entire lives would be revolutionized. Indeed, our whole demeanor would be entirely changed. What he's saying there is, the Father loves the world like he loves his Son. That's you. That's not some abstract concept. Like That's really real. That the Father, the Heavenly Father, loves you like he loves Jesus. It's you don't need the constant affirmation of those who surround you. You have the affirmation of the Father. And if we really believe that, if we really rested in that, oh, wouldn't we, wouldn't we have a little bit of peace? 
wouldn't we have a little bit more peace? Wouldn't we look in the mirror a little bit differently? Wouldn't we respond to criticism a little bit more, a little differently? If we really believe that these are truths about us. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. So how do you find what you're looking for? How do you find what you're looking for? Look at verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you love me before the world's foundation. Father, I want the world to I want my followers to see my glory. I want them to see it. You say, "Well, yeah, that's in the future, right? In heaven, Jesus returns. He'll be with me, they'll see my glory." Yes, fully in the future. But what about now? Is this is he Jesus talking about only something in the future? Or is there some part of this seeing his glory that we can experience even right now? Look at, uh, I think it's going to be on the screen here, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are, again, we are, grasp it, you're God's child. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, that's in the future, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So it's like future, right? When he comes back, we're going to see him as he is and we'll be like him. But listen to verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's a, there's a presentness to this as well. There's a present hope in this seeing right now. Or look at 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, he says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. We're looking at the glory of the Lord, present, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And he continues on in chapter 4, and he says, God said, let light shine out of darkness, as shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he saying here? You know, advertisers know this. We desire, we want those things that we can see. We want those things that we can see. And when we see the beauty and the glory of Jesus, we're drawn to it. And when we see him return in all of his glory and all of his beauty, we're going to desire him so much that we're going to be just like him. That's how we're changed. We, you see, I don't have enough willpower to really change my heart. We don't really make changes in our life by willpower alone. We just don't have enough of it. It's not strong enough. We're... We're changed by our desires, by our love. To really change our behavior, to really change, we need to change what we love, to change what we want. And how does that happen? Well, according to these verses, it's by what we see. It's by seeing the beauty of Jesus, by seeing his glory. 
Maybe you're one of the couple of us in this room who struggle with forgiving other people. Maybe someone's wronged you. They've treated you wrongly. It's not right what's been done to you. If you, you can say, wow, a Christian has to forgive others. If you're motivated by the have to, by what you have to do, forgiveness will be superficial and temporary. How do you change? By seeing, by seeing. God's forgiveness of you. That's why Paul says, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be moved by how God has forgiven you. Say, wow, what I've, what I've done to God is way worse than what this person did to me. And he's forgiven that? We need to see his beauty. We need to be drawn to it. We need to have our our love called out. Do you feel it even now? I've been doing the very best that I can to describe Jesus to you and how beautiful and glorious and great He is, what He's done for you. Does your heart go out to Him at all? Say, wow, that is beautiful. That's lovely. I want that. I want to know that more and more. Let me sense your love. Maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe you're like, no, not feeling anything. Like, then could you say in your heart of hearts, Lord, let, would you let me sense your love in my heart even right now by your Holy Spirit so that my heart would go out to you? It's not just enough to know some things. You need to see it, to sense it, to taste it, to be almost swamped by it. Like, uh, like most white men, coming next. Um, like most white men, I'm not naturally comfortable with emotion. It's easy. That's a great way to, uh, if you don't like something about yourself, just hide behind your gender or race or both. It's good. So I'm not all that naturally comfortable with emotion. I like things to make intellectual sense. That's why I'm drawn to a, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm drawn to a system of theology called Calvinism. It's because it's so nerdy and makes a lot of sense intellectually and philosophically and biblically and like it just comes together and it fits and it seems to work. So I love theology and I love truth. So there's a season in my life where I read a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff and it's great and I'm not denying it even now, but then I read one of these Calvinists named Charles Spurgeon. He says in one of his sermons, he says, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we have almost had to ask for a stay of the delight because we could not endure anymore. And I'm like, if a white guy Calvinist like Charles Spurgeon says that, So how's it all going to end out? End up? How's it all? What's the end of the world as we know it? Well, verse 26 of John 17 says we'll eventually get there. We'll eventually get there. I have made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. It's coming. It's a certainty. 
What comes to your mind when you think of heaven, when you will be with him? What comes to your mind when you think of heaven? Streets paved of gold? Good city planning department, I think, could even replicate that now. Talk to Irwin Weens. Raise taxes enough? We could pave Queen Street in gold. When are you happiest in your life? When you're in love. When you're surrounded by relationships of love, right? Jesus says, you're going to be with me. And you're going to see the love of God. You'll see it and taste it and be surrounded by it. You'll be caught up into it. Love is what we need most in this world, but it also makes us miserable. So we, some of us try to live without relationships of love and we're totally miserable. Some of us try to live with love and we're fairly miserable. Can't live with them, can't live without them, right? Love is agonizing in this world. Love is agonizing. I once heard a Tim Keller sermon where he summarized a Jonathan Edwards sermon. So now I'm not only second-handing, I'm third-handing Jonathan Edwards for you this morning. He describes the, the agonizing quality of our love relationships in this world. Because we want our love, we want to be loved for who we are. We don't want to be used Right, there's a Subaru commercial right now on the radio. I don't know if you've heard this. And uh, the, the conversation between two, two dating people. And he says, oh, I had a really great time with you today. And she's like, I really love your car. <laughs> He's like, are you just using me for my car? He answers, yeah, she is. We don't like to be used. But we all tend to love people who can benefit us. We want to be loved for who we are, for our own sake, not used. We all have a need to express our love. In order to actually complete it, we need to express it. And yet white guys like me are often not very good at expressing that love. And we kind of feel like can't quite get it out just right. And so even the love experiences is not quite totally fulfilled. We want to be loved mutually. It's terrible, right, to love someone and not have them love you in return? Or to actually be loved by someone and not really have reciprocity in those, those feelings. It's, it seldom works. We want our loved ones to be happy. Someone told me once, your own, and when I became a dad, he says, you'll only ever be as happy as your unhappiest child now that you're a parent. You're only as happy as your unhappiest child. Right? We won't be happy if our loved ones aren't happy. And we want love without saying goodbye. And in this world, every love relationship that you ever have is going to be ripped away by death. Dying young is tragic. Dying old is tragic because you had to watch everyone that you love die. I often say to grieving families as they're in my office and we're trying to figure out how many people are going to be at this funeral, it's one of the big determiners is age. If you're really old and you die, most of your friends have already died. You see, we're not in the love relationships that we're built for. We're never quite 
experience the fullness of love in this world. And as C.S. Lewis would say, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most reasonable explanation is that we're built for another world. There's a coming day when love will be perfect, when you will be loved for your own sake, where you will be able to express that love perfectly, where you'll be loved mutually, where all those that you love will be perfectly happy, and you'll experience a love without ever having to say goodbye. Where do you get this environment? get this in the presence of Jesus, where Jesus is. Where is he? He's in, he's in the Trinity, the community of perfect love, that dance of love. And when you believe in Jesus, you're plunged into that fountain, that overflowing fountain of love. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid that death is going to rip away every love relationship that you've ever had? Death threatens to take it all. Our, life, our lives are only meaningful because of our love relationships. And death says, I'm going to take them all away from you. But the wonderful promise of Jesus is that death is defeated. Death is defeated. And so we can taunt death like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who's given us the victory through Jesus our Lord. this wonderful promise true? I hope that's the question some of us are wrestling with this morning. Is it true? It sounds too good to be true. I often say to some of my friends who don't believe in Jesus, it's, you see, Christianity, following Jesus, is such good news, you should want it to be true. You should want it to be true because it's what you're built for. It promises what you're built for, and we know it. You're built for relationships of love, of perfect love. And that's the promise of Jesus. Is that perfect, unending love is coming your way. And you can begin to taste it even today. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, would you convince us of the great love of Jesus? Holy Spirit, be welcome in this place to convince us of your great love and draw our hearts out to you, Jesus, so that we would experience that kind of joy, that kind of rejoicing, that kind of happiness that comes from knowing perfect love. So pour out your love on us, not just in an intellectual way, Father, not that just that we would know some truths about your love, but that we would experience your love, that we would know it, know it experientially as you pour it out on us and pour it out in our hearts. And that, Lord, we would find our identity there in your affirmation, in your love for us. May we experience a taste of your love in belonging together as brothers and sisters in our relationships here as well. And make us into that kind of a church, Lord, where we can begin to taste, begin to experience what it is to walk in love and to be loved. I pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.